0: Welcome to the Beyond Medicine podcast. My name is Rami Webby, and I'm your host. In this podcast, we bring you inspiring leaders from across the medical landscape and explore the cutting edge of science and medicine. What's up guys, this is episode 62 of Beyond Medicine with Dr. Rusha Modi. Dr. Rusha is a gastroenterologist, a public speaker and a patient advocate And he's the founder of an up-and-coming podcast called The Alchemy of Politics. And Dr. Rusha and I have a conversation about what it means for doctors to get involved in politics, why doctors should have a more active role in politics, and some of the problems when it comes to policymaking and policymakers. So check it out, and we hope you guys enjoy this one. Before we get into the episode, a quick word from our sponsor at Resolve Physician Agency. Resolve is a contract review agency and they want to be your partner in negotiating for better terms. Doctors, you should always have a professional review your contract and review the fine print. Resolve uses market data based on your specialty and location, and in combination with their expert team of attorneys, they're able to use that as leverage for contract negotiations. Resolve is able to help physicians negotiate for significantly higher salaries, more significant sign-on bonuses, better benefits, and more reasonable call hours. Nearly everything in a contract is negotiable given the right leverage. To find out more, go to resolve.com. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm with Dr. Rusha Modi, who is a gastroenterologist and also a new founder of his podcast, The Alchemy of Politics, which is coming out soon Dr. Usha, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. How are you, my friend?
1: Uh, I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here. I've been a huge fan of your show for a long time, so it's really just really exciting, and it's an honor to to be here talking to you today.
0: Oh, thanks, man. You make me feel special over here.
1: Of course. (laughs) I mean, I'm always impressed with people that are leading the charge in innovation, which is kind of one of the background themes of the show and whether it's political or not people who are trying to do something different which you are which is the whole show that you're running beyond medicine like that's exciting people want to hear that i want to be certainly a continued listener and your shows have been great so good on you
0: thank you man thanks i I appreciate the kind words i do i do sometimes listen back and say you know it's funny how critical we can be uh, uh, about ourselves when we're trying to put out content and yeah um do something, you know, different. I I know I struggle with being very critical of myself and sometimes struggle with even taking a compliment, but I do appreciate that. Um so I, you know, I was introduced to I was introduced to you through our friend Vic, who's also uh, you know, uh, a really ambitious man and uh, we've had him on the podcast before and he's just said really great things about you and When I heard about you wanting to start a politics podcast and heard that, you know, obviously your physician is, your background is as a physician. And I thought that was really interesting. And I thought, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. Not a lot of doctors are going and starting a a politics podcast. Not a lot are really involved in politics even. And uh, so I, I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk a little bit about that and also um, just, you know, to create a little community so we can also support our our fellow podcasters and our fellow doctors who are doing things uh, outside the box.
1: Yeah, that's 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 exactly it. I mean, I think what I you know, to reference what you just said, the there's a quote from Dave Chappelle, you know, who said the the beauties in the attempt, you know, it, the, the beauties in the and taking the courage to get on stage to go do a podcast to Put yourself out there. That's the arena that Teddy Roosevelt once cited that most people don't want to enter. And I think that regardless of what happens, that alone I think puts you in the, in the win column, and you should be proud of that. And hopefully, I'll get to join you in that in that podcasting arena, really talking about the things that can change society, make people healthier, push society forward, uh, create new technology, and, and all the above. So the beauty is in the attempt.
0: That's that's a wonderful quote. It really is. It really is in the attempt because I remember when I first started this this podcast, I really didn't know. I mean, it was at a time when nobody really knew what podcasts were, and you know, I I didn't. I just thought, you know, this might be a thing in the future. Let's give it a try. And um, I've just kind of been winging it for for most of for most of the evolution of this podcast. But it's um, there is a lot of beauty in that attempt. And even if you fail, I think there's um, you know, it's good to try because then you at least, you know, you can say, you know, at least I didn't just wonder what if, you know, at least I didn't, I'm not going to have regrets about it later on. So there, there is a lot of beauty in that. And there's a lot of peace in that as well.
1: I I agree. You know, I think that what is the old saw about uh, ships are safest docked at the shore, but that's not what a ship is made for. Right. So, you know, I almost take like a statistical approach to it, which is, you know, there there are errors, there are type one errors, type two errors. And, you know, basically if life is all about making errors, which error are you more likely to regret? An error of commission. You did something that you said, man, I really shouldn't have, or an error of omission where I really should have done that, but I didn't. And I think if you talk to people across the continuity of your lives, it's what you just said. It's people tend to regret the things that they didn't do that they kind of felt that they didn't. And, you know, we're all in healthcare. We all want to help people. That doesn't make us saints by any means. But I think that means that more often than not, yeah. our, our impulses are coming from a good place. Like we really actually want to do good in the world. Yeah. And so if you lean into that, I think, and roll the dice on that across across the long term, that's going to iterate. That's going to compound, I think, to your advantage and to the benefit of your listeners, which I think they've already felt that way. So
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, not to go down a complete alleyway right now, but um, you know, I this is something I'm actually writing about, um, especially with kind of the avoidance of taking risks due to what I call like you know, what I describe in my book. Uh, about the sunk cost fallacy and why for doctors it's especially hard to actually pursue your your purpose and pursue things you actually want to pursue because of the time effort investment and resources it takes to get to where you are there's right. a guilt aspect that holds you back from actually doing what you want to do because of what you have invested in and and that's a whole different discussion but I'm glad that you are you know, taking the dive on this new podcast and uh, talking about a very important topic for for a lot of us in, in medicine. I'd, uh, I'd like to just kind of take, uh, take a peek into your life growing up and and your inspiration behind this podcast and why you have had such a taking to politics, how that has led to you now um, kind of pursuing this this new uh, direction.
1: Yeah, that that's a great question. I I've always been sort of uh, a semi-philosophical guy. I mean, I remember having you know existential philosophical conversations in high school on a camping trip when I was in Joshua Tree when I was really young, and <laughs> you know, I think that was honestly one of the reasons I went into medicine. It was this idea of like I want to make sense of the chaos of the world, right? The, the life is filled with just all kinds of beautiful confusing phenomena things that happen for no reason and you know asking hard questions and working with people who are equally dedicated to finding uh an answer to those questions or at least seeing the beauty in the attempt right that the the mere asking of the question is itself valuable that has always been a part of my sort of identity and that was my approach through medical school right medical school as we all know and being a clinician, because I'm an, I'm an actively practicing gastroenterologist, is all about having some of the toughest conversations that can occur, you know, with end-of-life situations, people who are acutely ill or actively trying to die, sometimes some of the most beautiful ones as well. And I think that I see this as sort of a natural extension of the interest that fueled me into healthcare in the first place. Uh, but I will say that I've always had a macroscopic lens to some of the things that happened to my patients. I'd always ask, you know, okay, you're, you're struggling to get, you know, basic exercise in your steps and what's going on with where you live? And I'd hear stories of people saying there's, you know, crime on the streets and it's unsafe to walk outside and, you know, the air pollution is triggering my asthma and I, I have to stay indoors or... You know, parents are away and a sibling is raising a younger sibling and, you know, can't afford to leave the house. And, you know, really just difficult, tragic stories sometimes that made me realize, wow, I'm I'm kind of limited to a certain degree with the pharmaceutical and procedural interventions that I have. I need to have a better understanding of the lived reality of the patients that I'm trying to help. And that requires that I ask some different questions than the ones that I've asked and get a different skill set. And then in the last year, as we all know, the last 18 months, that is something we've all lived through, which I found to be really unique. This is a period of a universal public health challenge with, with the COVID pandemic. And I thought if I don't step up now to really lean into these things that have been part of my interest in healthcare since the beginning, I'm going to be missing a really golden opportunity to learn more and to help more and to take a leadership role. And I and I always advocated for physicians to do the same, whether it's political or not.
0: All right, well, I mean, if you really think about impact in general, um, you know, the, the closer to the root of the problem that you can get, the larger the impact that you're gonna make. And, and a lot of problems in our country are rooted in politics or policies solving, you know, one thing like, or, you know, proposing a bill or or helping pass a law that, you know, helps homeless people get more access to care or that, you know, creates some drug program for people struggling with addiction. You know, like these are the things that save thousands or millions of lives. So if you really look at something from, you know, just an impact perspective, yeah, you could see thousands of patients in a year and in help, you know, a few of them live a little bit longer. And you can also commit time to doing work in another arena that, you know, through one bill or through one kind of change in policy, you can affect uh, thousands, maybe millions of people in the future. And we don't need really, you know, as doctors, we think the only way to help people is through seeing them in a patient's room, having a one-on-one conversation or a team conversation and prescribing a medication like yeah you can help someone you know in a in a very microscopic way address one problem or you know a disease but there's other ways that a doctor can also play an active role and create larger and more impactful change in in the world and in the in their communities.
1: I, I 100% agree and I think that that's always the tension that exists in healthcare between patient in front of you versus the sea of patients in the community at large whatever you define your your community to be i have always leaned towards some of the larger issues that affect what happens in the exam room and i kind of see the divide between those four walls and the community around us to be quite a bit looser and thinner those are those are diaphanous membranes i think that there's a real connection between the two. And I understand that not every physician or healthcare provider is gonna to want to engage politically or socially in some of those larger things. And I think that's a debate worth having, but I think my argument would be, regardless of how you practice medicine or what your role in healthcare is, if you're not at least aware and cognizant on a deep level of how the big affects the small, how the you know larger social issues affects you know, how they affect the patient in front of you, I think you're going to be shortchanged. I think you're missing an opportunity to advance the care of people that you are seeking to serve. And I don't think we have the luxury now of avoiding one of these areas versus the other. I think social and public health and political challenges are medical challenges and Mm -hmm. those will increasingly collide. And I absolutely wholeheartedly encourage physicians to take the reins, to take that leadership role, lead from the front, because we have people making decisions in positions of power that have never been in an ICU caring for another patient. They don't know what it feels like to be on call up until 3 a.m. in the morning or on an overnight cycle, you know, struggling to keep someone alive. They, They haven't walked patients through some of the most challenging periods of their life. Now, I'm not saying that you need to do those things to be a leader, but that's a special privilege, a painful one that we have all earned Mm -hmm. through our dedication to this field. And that, I think, gives us credibility at at the table. And we need to use that to advocate for others. I mean, there's an old discussion. There's an old phrase that describes the role of physicians as attorneys for the poor. Mm -hmm. And that has always been something that has resonated with me in terms of like what we're trying to do we're, we're, we're trying to give people who've never had a break a real chance
0: mm-hmm. uh
1: which you know doesn't necessarily prescribe a certain political view but when you conceptualize what we do in that regard i think from there naturally flows an engagement with larger issues so mm-hmm. yeah and uh you brought up an
0: interesting point and you know in politics you know there's a lot of lawyers in there making you know, involved in all arenas uh, of the law, and they're making laws for lawyers. And, you know, you don't see, you don't see doctors sitting here writing laws for what lawyers can do and what their scope of practice is and how they can, you know, be involved in certain things. But, you know, it's like pretty regularly that lawyers are sitting here dictating what doctors can do or can't do and Um, dictating what healthcare should be or shouldn't be and who gets what. And so I I I think there's this concept that, like, why, yeah, and I haven't been able to wrap my head around this, but why aren't doctors the ones creating their policies and their laws through a collective discussion? And why is it the lawyers and on in, in in DC that are making these decisions for our community?
1: I mean, I think there's a variety of answers to that. I think on one level, historically up until quite recently, right, medicine was more of a an art than a science, let's be real. It hasn't really been since like the last 70 years where medical science has really gotten to the point where we could really offer something to a patient, you know, beyond just fluids and aspirin, right? And then like penicillin. And so, you know, in the 1800s, early 1900s, it's not unreasonable to say that if you saw a physician or a surgeon there's a good chance he or she, and unfortunately it was only he back then, would probably harm you as much as they would help you, and so it was a sort of cottage industry, and it kind of still is. Prescribe you
0: some Marlboro cigarettes,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, a, a bullet to bite on and a shot of brandy, and like off you go, <laughs> Civil War veteran. Like you know, it's sort of isn't one it crazy? Really, man? do crazy?
0: Isn't it crazy so, what we used to once think was okay? I'm sorry to cut you off, but we'll... no, no,
1: this is totally fine. Yeah.
0: But it's crazy that what we once thought was, you know, healthy or like reasonable is now just barbaric. And, and, and sure I think the- that
1: that's going to happen in the future, right? I mean, that's what your show is all about. That's why it's so exciting is I think five years from now, 10 years from now, 30 years from now, people will be looking at us and all the hard work we've done to learn this science. And they're going to say, my God you know, Rami and Rush, what were they doing? What well, This is insane that they were practicing medicine this way. And, you know, as a side point, that's something that I always do with my patients. I never come in as this sort of all-knowing figure because I think that sets up expectations you can't fulfill. I'm always honest about where there are gaps in the literature and where reasonable providers may disagree on a treatment plan. Because I think when you do that, then you build credibility by being so vulnerable and honest about, hey, I don't know all of this, right? Science hasn't figured it out. I mean, doctor as God, I think, is really not a useful metaphor for conceptualizing that role. And that that's a political thing, right? That's how, What is the role of, of how you see your practice vis-a-vis how you interact with patients? These are philosophical paradigms that I think are practically relevant to kind of you know how you practice, but you know to answer your larger question. So, medicine has always been sort of a cottage field that wasn't very scientific. So, we didn't really have an interaction with the larger community. Like, you know, a physician had her, you know his shingle and had a local practice next to the blacksmith, and then off you go. And like, you know, as long as you didn't kill someone, I guess, like you were okay. So, issues of finance, issues of money, issues of power, issues of status weren't naturally part of healthcare. That's intrinsic to the law, right? The law enshrines social norms. It determines what's appropriate, what's not. It distributes the flow of money. Those things are part of every nation state since this country was created and even before we were a nation, right, when we were just 13 colonies. And so I think the law and lawyers have naturally been inclined to grapple with those issues. The irony now is that most physicians still don't like today talking about money. It's not part of medical training. It's a dirty thing to talk about money. You're not supposed to think about it. Just do what the evidence says. Don't bring up finances to your patient. So we don't want to be involved in healthcare discussions as it relates to finance and money, but the the society around us is increasingly forcing us to. Every day in the New York Times, there's a discussion on the front page about how astronomically expensive healthcare is, which it is, right? Trillions of dollars, large percentages of our GDP, and increasingly so to healthcare. Soon, 20% of the workforce by some estimates in this country, especially because of the COVID pandemic, will be in healthcare. The fastest growing jobs by sector are in healthcare and taking care of people, home health particularly. So we are in this situation where we are forced to think about things that by definition, many of us don't have an inclination to talk about, and we're not trained to talk about. And so we have a situation where lawyers, as you pointed out, are dictating what kind of insurance models we have access to that will allow patients to get care from us and with us. And that isn't inappropriate, but that's that's not comprehensive. That's not a 360 degree approach we need to have healthcare providers in the room where it happens so to speak yeah. helping to shape these discussions
0: yeah yeah i agree it's such a terrible mindset to to see to go through the medical training process to see like the topic of how much something costs not even being considered in the treatment plan. We've never been taught how much everything costs. It's never even brought up like you you go and you work in the ER and it's just like, yeah, just order this, 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 and this. And you're practicing defensive medicine. You're ordering things. So you don't get caught on the back end of anything and you don't know how much you're raking up the bills. And this is also partially why insurance has become the way it is and why insurance companies now are like just giving, give doctors such a hassle whenever they want to approve something, which is, I'm I'm definitely not voucher, you know, protecting insurance companies because I, I hate them as much as the next doctor. But um, there's a reason medicine is the way it is. Um, uh, I think we just are, you know, we care, we care about our patients, we want to do what's right for them. But we've never been taught to like, if some like if a patient was paying for something out of pocket, let's Say we didn't have insurance and you know a patient's going to be paying for something out of pocket. You are like, when I have a cash pay patient, I'm thinking about every single thing I'm going to order for them because I know it's going to get expensive and I know that they can't afford to pay for everything. So I'm going to order the minimal amount of labs. If I don't think something's absolutely necessary for them, then I'm not going to order it. And if I think something's critical and it's, it's going to make a life change, you know, this is for the betterment of their health, then I'm going to make a decision and say, Hey, you know, I really think you need this, you know, CT scan or this MRI, but it's expensive. But here, you know, I know somewhere that you can get it for the best price possible. And then there's that discussion, but because everybody, and and this is a whole bit, you know, where I know we're going down a different kind of route here, but You know, when you just assume that insurance is going to pay for something, and you just don't even care what it costs, that's not practicing good medicine, right? And and that's not practicing practical medicine. And it's what's leading to this healthcare crisis that we have in this country now because we don't account for what something costs. We just assume they got to cover it. This is why they pay for insurance. Blah blah blah. It's just a terrible mindset to have going through the healthcare system.
1: I mean, I, I completely agree. And it's, it's, it's unsustainable. I, I mean, I, I mean, I give an example for my field, but when a few years ago, you had direct antiviral acting agents, right? DAAs for hepatitis C, so-called cures for hepatitis C game changers in the field of, of hepatology. I mean, these initial treatment cycles for weeks or months on end ended up being like the initial course of Harvoni, which was a medication that's, uh, you know, approved for for hep C was was initially like $100,000, right? When you look at a chemotherapeutic cycle for most solid tumors, your initial cycle course is gonna be tens of thousands of dollars just for the medicines and the infusions, not including onc visits, right? I mean, a coronary artery bypass graph for severe atherosclerotic disease, you know, on pure cost basis alone is gonna be hundreds of thousands of dollars and now you have these so-called blockbuster new drugs, whether it's, uh, you know, mRNA technology that might have a role in, in immunotherapy for cancer, existing, you know, checkpoint inhibitors. We have an era of medicine where we have fantastic opportunities with really step functions and interventions that can really alter the natural history of disease. But these are unsustainable, unscalable costs. Like, I don't know about you, but like, you know were I to get acutely ill and get lymphoma today like i I don't have a hundreds and thousands of dollars in the bank just free sitting there liquid cash to to pay out for you know in, you know life-saving chemotherapy I don't know many people that do I mean that would put you in like the point one of the 0 point1 percent so we have this situation where medical innovation has dramatically outpaced our ability to finance that so what do we do? What is the point of all this if we can't use it to help people? And then you have, you know, frankly, villains like the pharma bro, you know, the former CEO. uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, like Martin Shrekly or something. Martin Shrekly, oh my
0: gosh. Shrekly
1: jacking up the price (laughs) of existing medications because, you know, they conceive their role in society uh, as a pharmaceutical uh, firm to just increase shareholder value. So that's a classic classic example of a real world scenario that'll affect your patients that directly pull in these larger issues about philosophy, political approach, cost of drugs. How do we finance this? Like these things aren't divorced from each other. Right. And I think that if we are going to get ahead of this, we as a community have to organize. That doesn't mean agree on this. We can have reasonable difference of opinion, but we have to engage with these problems on a level that I don't think writ large, our field has in the past.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've often wondered about this where, you know, medical innovation is outpacing our ability to afford some of these things. And um, we recently did an interview with an organ chip technology company that is, you know, one of their main goals is try to reduce the kind of the cost of getting a drug to market. Because one of the reasons that it's so expensive to afford these new biologics, these new immunotherapies, these new technologies is because the failure rate of getting a a drug through clinical trials is ridiculous. It's like 90%. And so you have this enormous spend, I think it takes on average 14 years um, and $2 billion to get a drug from the discovery phase all the way to completing the clinical trials and into human into the actual uh, hands of patients. And so you have this super expensive process of creating these drugs for rare diseases. Um, And then once they actually get approved, they're just completely unaffordable, but then now you have this life-saving treatment that's available and it's gone through the market, but it's extremely expensive. And you expect, do we expect the insurance company to just keep paying for these extremely expensive new life-saving treatments or do like, how do you even manage that? And I've, I, you know, I've never really been able to articulate what my thoughts were about that because it just, I understood it, but I just didn't know how to comprehend it because I understood we got new and better technologies constantly coming at us. They're getting more expensive. So what happens down the road where we just can, we can cure anything but it's just ridiculously expensive. At what point is that prohibitive uh, from us actually spending dollars on it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the the real thing is that we are in this sort of dichotomy right now where we're innovating faster than ever in, in medicine and biomedical science, but our financing options to fund that and provide that at scale is dramatically behind. Right, We have a situation where most of the things that we might prescribe in the future, in the near future, I might add, are beyond the financial means of most of our patients. So that that leads to, in my opinion, a great challenge of professional credibility and and professional heartbreak. Like we, we wanna help people, but the very tools that we have to do that, that are world changing in some regard are increasingly out of realistic reach let alone if either one of us ever, you know, acutely needed them and got sick ourselves. And so if we as taxpayers are providing the seed funding for this research, I think that needs to be something that is given way more weight in terms of how pharmaceuticals are priced by, by big pharma, right? Right now they're able to get kind of a blank slate when it comes to what the extent of their, you know, drug IP exists, you know, like the length of their patents. Pricing of the market, right? They'll argue that, you know, because cost-effectiveness research is still limited generally by the government and you can't import ch- cheaper generic versions from other countries. They, they basically have the parameters under their control to determine their own market. They don't really get subjected to market forces because there aren't competitive players that make multiple versions of the same drug when it's a new class of therapy. I mean, how many checkpoint inhibitors are there out there? Right, Right. It's a new step function increase in innovation. By definition, it's novel. And granted, that doesn't always happen all the time. So it's not really a market in the traditional sense. It's a highly protected, almost protectionistic sub market that has subsidies indirectly, if not directly from the government, and it's escalating healthcare costs. So this isn't an argument to like get rid of big pharma. Like I'm a huge proponent of innovation, but like we have to have a discussion about how we can actually provide these to our patients without bankrupting, you know, half the nation to do it.
0: Right. And that's and and the point is like why, you know, I've never once had someone talk to me about, you know, how we're gonna how we're gonna keep making these new drugs and how we're gonna eventually make it so that everybody can afford them right or how are we going to make it so that everybody can uh you know have affordable insulin you know things like that and i i get the innovative the innovation part it's just i don't understand that if we're going to keep coming up with new expensive technologies how do we expect insurance and healthcare to continue to pay for that it's it just doesn't And, and, and like the conversation of like, at what, like, at what point is that prohibitive? Like, when is there, like, let's say we come out with a pill that gives you unlimited life force and health and vitality, but it costs $10 million, but you know, it prevents everybody from dying. If you have cancer, you take this pill, you're all of a sudden cured and, but it's $10 million. Like what, at what point do we say, okay, well, you know, sorry, you just, you're, you're not going to get this medication because it's too expensive. Or, you know, like, how do you even have that conversation? How do you even explain to someone, we do have the means to cure you, but we can't because it's too expensive. Like, is that like, there's almost like this ethical slash moral slash financial dilemma that kind of crosses, path, crosses paths at some point. And I've never once had anyone or heard of anyone bring this up or even talk about it.
1: Yeah, I mean I think you know I think a lot of people have been you know actually talking about this issue and I'll, and I'll give a couple examples but to answer your central point, like I, I think that we've already crossed that point. I, I can't tell you. I mean I used to work at a county hospital, the second largest county facility in the country right, in Los Angeles, you know, working with undocumented individuals, working poor, many of them non-English speaking, very few resources. I can't tell you how many of them I would diagnose with end-stage GI cancers of various organs, liver, gallbladder, pancreas, obviously colon, many times stomach, trying to get them emergency medical so they can get salvage chemotherapy, only to be waiting for four months in an ONC visit at a county clinic that's overrun Overrun, you know, and I I would talk to some of the oncology fellows, and they're they're struggling to, to staff those clinics. We we've already decided implicitly as a nation, and this is a variant of one of my medical heroes, Paul Farmer, right? You know, his work um, in, in the tropics with with the Haitian population has said that you know we have already decided in this country that some people are worth more than others, and so we have allowed ourselves. You know, as a collective, to say that there are expendables, there are people that are collateral damage. This super pill, which is the figment of scientific fiction, there are kinds of super pills, maybe not as effective as this, that can really be life saving or help people or dramatically improve the quality of their life that are denied to hundreds, if not millions, of people. Up until Obamacare, 50 million people had no health insurance and millions more underinsured. So, like, This, you know, future scenario where this sort of this medical dichotomy, you know, the has and the have-nots, we've actually been living that for for a very, very long time, right? And I think that that's sort of the sad thing here. And then the the modern example is with the COVID vaccines, right? Many people, especially on the left, are arguing, hey, we need to break IP laws, talking about lawyers, um, and actually expand legal access so that generic manufacturers can replicate you know biotech pfizer's vaccine and moderna's mrna vaccine technology because you know india for example which is undergoing a humanitarian pandemic right now crisis has like 5% of their population vaccinated meanwhile here in this country we have the luxury of having anti-vaxxers debate the efficacy of what are safe vaccines when most most of the developing world is struggling to get access of it, to it. And so there's a real question here, like, okay, should we avoid this scenario that you just described with the vaccines? I mean, if your country is decimated by COVID. A COVID vaccine can be kind of a super pill that cures quite a bit or prevents a lot. Of so should we have uh, a loosening of licensing laws and intellectual property protection because it's a humanitarian crisis? And if that precedent is set now, do we then extend that to less acute, but equally important other health crises, mm-hmm. right? Like the companies that make naloxone for the opiate pandemic, right? That's, or opiate epidemic, right? That, that's an equally pressing issue. Maybe not at scale, but in this country, it would be life-saving if Narcan was available commonly in every AED and emergency CPR device around the world, around the country. Um, that would require a massive government, you know, subsidy, but also changes in some medical licensing laws. So people who say, like, well, I'm a physician and I don't really want to get involved, but like, you know, you're treating opiate epidemic patients, you're treating patients with COVID. We are seeing what happens if large swaths of people stay unvaccinated. Replicants occur, mutations occur. And then they lead to variations of the alpha wild type strain that become deadly. That's exactly why we're dealing with Delta. So this in this case is a matter of self-interest. If only that, that should get, you know, people really excited and motivated and concerned about what's happening.
0: Right. See, and that's, that's a interesting, that's an interesting point right there, because if you can, if we did have more doctors in politics to help with talking about these things, highlighting these problems, knowing from their past experiences of seeing patients die from uh, heroin overdose or opioid op- overdose, um, knowing how it plagues communities, knowing the problems that communities face, you can implement changes that have susten- substantial effects down the line. And um, you know, who's to say that's any less than important than seeing patients in a clinic every single day? Right. It's, 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 if not more impactful, probably to have, you know, some kind of policy change that, that has lasting effect for years to come. Um, Do you, do you, so tell us about like alchemy of politics, like what is your hope and what kind of conversations do you want to have? And who do you actually want to reach with, with your podcast?
1: Yeah, that's, that's, a great question so alchemy of politics is a new podcast that i'm launching and it it started actually with a couple of you know anecdotal experiences that i've had that i really shared with some some close friends that felt similarly one was you know there was a time you know probably within the beginning or the mid part of the pandemic where i got anxious i got anxiety like acute anxiety that i could feel like i could feel my heart rate increase and my pulse quicken and get nervous and sweaty every time my phone buzzed when I got an Apple news alert or a, a breaking news update from the New York Times app. And I was like, oh, my God, what is it now? I mean, last year, that summer was an intense collision of racial reckoning and obviously the pandemic and then the role of our society and governmental institutions in that and disinformation and challenges with the election like this was a just a storm a perfect storm of kind of all the unresolved traumas that have not been healed in this country coming together and I said like why am I I shouldn't be getting anxious like I should be concerned but this like acute anxiety means that I don't have a healthy relationship with my media diet right I'm a gastroenterologist here I often talk to patients about their diet right so I said okay, the media isn't necessarily providing a narrative of context of like how to make sense of this and like how we can actually respond to these issues. It's just sort of, it bleeds, it leads. And I was like, I'm a news junkie. I've always enjoyed reading the news. I love you know, reading through papers, checking out what's happening in the world of politics, finance and whatnot. But this was like categorically different. I was worried about the world around me and I didn't feel the media was helping me. So this show is trying to change that. And then I would talk to people, regular people, physicians and not, who just felt beaten down, exhausted, drum beaten and world-weary, feeling like, yeah, the world seems crazier than ever and I don't know what to do about it. I want to do something, Ruscha, but I don't know what. I need to know how to make sense of all this. Right, I had a lot of people not in healthcare who were like, I don't really know much about viruses. And now the government's saying, hey, there's this crazy new virus coming out of China and it's an RNA virus. And like, we got to develop this vaccine and we got to wear a I mean, this is a dramatic upheaval of our entire way of life. And the one thing, regardless of what your political views are about all that happened, that I think we can all agree on is that there was a failure of communication by our leaders on both political parties and by our our sort of institutions of stature, both healthcare and not, if not overt misinformation by some individuals and, and organizations. And that lack of communication, I thought disempowered the American public. So I realized there is a major gap in our media landscape and there's a failure of leadership by our elected officials to address the challenges of the day. And I thought, I don't want my friends, I don't want my neighbors, I don't want my patients feeling politically and professionally impotent, that they can't do anything about these things. I wanted to return agency to you guys. And to do that, you need information, you need smart people giving their take on things, you need context, but you also need real stories of how to practically respond to these challenges in a way that makes sense, that isn't just about clickbait and getting you to look at the next headline. So this show stands for all of that. And I hope that with a healthcare focus, we can branch out to other topics that also have sort of a health as policy framework that can make world events sensible for us in a way that allows us to respond really impactfully on those issues.
0: Love it. And do you feel, do you think you want to get involved with politics yourself at some point?
1: Yes. I mean, I know when you, when you ask politicians, like, are you running for something, they have to beat around the bush because they don't want to announce and they can get to fundraise in secret more and et cetera. Like, I'm not acutely looking to run immediately, but yes, I, I look to run politically at some point or at least get involved politically. And I always tell people I'm an ideas guy. Like, I, there is nothing more powerful, attractive, sexier and interesting to me than like a new idea like a fresh idea, like a novel take, someone that you know has a different approach. So I, I put ideas over political parties. I put that over political preferences. I am party agnostic, I am idea uh, proponent. Like I, I believe a new idea with a fresh take can't save mm-hmm. us from ourselves, right? And yeah. so I think that that's what I'm looking to do in the political world is try and get new ideas that are out there because i think we can all agree it's just the same two parties rehashing the same views again mm-hmm. and i think right now as we were discussing before is a period where those orthodoxies are being challenged yeah there's such a going on that we have to reevaluate what we all believe in what what are what is being assumed as common sense by either side
0: yeah What's it, what's it like in California right now with with just the political environment over, over there?
1: Well, I mean, I'll give you an example. Like you know, California here, which has been home for much of my life, not all, but uh, just had a recall election of their governor, of our governor, Governor Newsom. Now, the recall itself was was ludicrous, right? He was fairly elected for a certain term. He didn't do anything that egregiously was so awful that merited a recall but you know Newsom is got some personality issues that can make him hard to be appreciated and he obviously had a sort of a public optics scandal with French Laundry this famous restaurant up in the sort of Napa region where in the middle of the pandemic when everyone else is masking oh, yeah. up and locking down <laughs> he's kind of he's having a dinner with politicos, including a major lobbyist, I believe, for the AMA or actually the California Hospital Association, one or the other. So he's actually hobnobbing, we're talking about politics and healthcare with major political advocates that have deep funds uh, in the healthcare industry. So it was a terrible message when the rest of the state is undergoing a really difficult time. And I think he's owned up to it and I, I accept his apology, but the recall was crazy because the leading conservative voice who was on the ballot, Larry Elder, was already screaming before the election recall even started that it was rigged, that it was it was a hacked election, that it, it wasn't fair, that it wasn't a free and fair election, like the classic Trump playbook. Yeah. Here in probably one of the bluest states in the nation. So this sentimentality, this virus, if you will, that elections aren't free and that they aren't fair, then that they have stolen it from you, that there's this deep state is spreading everywhere. And that is absolutely destructive to a democracy. And when we just had almost a year ago, a riot of our, our national capital, people fueled by that sort of lie, frankly, that there was, in fact, an election that was stolen, that idea, this dangerous inception, that our elections are completely catastrophically rigged and stolen from real Americans is, I think, very dangerous. And it's happening here, yeah. also in California, granted, Newsom won. Yeah. But that that is something that is now permeating everything that, that we are addressing in our demise. It's affecting our lives as physicians. How many patients have I seen that question the vaccine, that question yeah. medical authorities, you know, and they they don't know what to believe.
0: Yeah. I think what a lot of people learned from our prior president was that you can basically say, as long as you just say something enough times and just believe it to be true, regardless of whether it's true or not, you can convince people that things are the way it, they say it is like this past president convinced the whole part of the country that the election was rigged and he knows this guy. I don't think people think, I think people underestimate how smart he is. He is really smart. I don't care what anybody says. He is smart because he knows what he's doing. He's doing this purposefully. He knows that he can just repeatedly say something enough times with enough conviction to get people to eventually start to believe him. Like he started telling his followers he won the election. he still to this day is telling people he won the election.
1: And he had a rally just a couple days ago doing the same, the same spiel. I mean, he understood, which I think we as physicians need to understand, which is that one, truth is the first casualty of war, as they say. And we are kind of at a war, unfortunately with each other, but the number two, you know, You got to win over people's hearts before you can win over their minds, right? He played some pressure points and emotional elements in people's psyches that are wounded and hurt and angry. And he was able to manipulate and weaponize that pain for political gain. And I'm not saying we use that playbook, but we are in a great debate right now about restoration of the republic versus revolution, depending on which side of the political spectrum You view things. And that that debate is happening now with the the largest social spending package in the last 40 years in the in the Biden administration, versus like were those stimulus packages necessary or not last summer. You know, what does the government owe its citizens? What do we owe each other? There are some people that want to blow it up. There are other people that want to tinker at the margins, right? This is a debate about the management of the patient called America, the body politic. Mm -hmm. Right. We have Different views on this. And Trump, whether you liked him or not, I think understood very clearly that there is a deep, deep vein of pain, lack of being heard, lack of validation and anger from a part of America that feels forgotten. Yep, And that's why his words were able to resonate with a, a base of voters that are rabid fans of him yep. and they're willing to go off the cliff and maybe bring the country with it in order to do so. Yeah. And we think can't fix these problems unless we understand that mentality. We don't have to agree yeah. with it, but we have to understand it.
0: Yeah. See, I, I, I did my intern year in Pennsylvania um, in, in a rural part of Pennsylvania. And that was my first time ever going, that was my first time ever going from uh, from an area that was a pretty urban city-like to a completely rural area, total Trump town, totally different from what i'm used to and what i learned living there was that man there is a there's a whole nother part of this country that is living a totally different life than what people are used to living in the cities in the suburbs like i was totally unaware that this like people just people were living a different life there they, they had different beliefs i felt like i was in a different country for a whole year like it was just total culture shock. And these obviously, you know, this was a Trump town, this everybody there was a Trump supporter. Um, But there, there are places like that all over the country. And those people, you know, they're not bad people. There's a lot of good people there, you know, And and they feel like they are not, they, they, this is what Trump did. He knew that these people have been feeling resentful. They've been feeling unheard. They've got a lot of pain and anger towards the system He was the first guy that actually spoke against the system and was like, you know, connecting with them on things that they were just angry about. He's just connecting to their anger. It doesn't matter what part of the anger was, they're just angry and he's flaming that fire. And they finally felt like, oh, this is someone we can get behind because he's saying all these things. And, you know, he was making, it doesn't matter if he was making things up or not, he was just connecting to their emotional part. And I think there's even something to be said about this in medicine, because I think there are a group of people in medicine now that feel a similar way, that feel resentful, that feel like the system has been overrun, that feel like things are unfair, that feel like they're being taken advantage of. And now you don't know, like, we're, we're we're even divided in our meta in, in in our medical culture as well. I've never seen really so much division, maybe because I wasn't aware of it when I was younger, but there's a lot of division in the country right now and within a certain um organizational spheres like medicine
1: yeah, I mean, I see it with you know typically older attendings uh, but also some younger ones uh, you know that you know have Views on healthcare financing. They want a fee-for-service model. They want high reimbursement, which I, which I understand. They they avoid capitation. They don't want to do value-based care, uh, and they certainly don't want a nationalized healthcare model for insurance. So these are the debates within our professional stature. And you know how much does a colonoscopy deserve in terms of reimbursement, or what a family practice provider should get. So these things are happening within our fields, and we're all you know, fighting this, you know, uh, and then writ large, I think these challenges are absolutely that, like, you know, you have some Trump supporters feeling that there needs to be a civil war. Mm -hmm. And granted, that's hyperbole. And let's say it's even the outliers of the outliers. But like the fact that that's even entering the discussion, I think, should concern us. And that is
0: we almost did it. I think we all we were very close to a civil war earlier this year.
1: Yeah, just this morning. In fact, while we're talking today, Fiona Hill This morning or yesterday, who was one of the national security advisors for Trump, went on, I think, a recent, you know, political talk show and basically said that, you know, January sixth is a dress rehearsal, unquote, yeah, for future political violence. Yep, and that, my, yeah, that, that's my, scary.
0: Yeah, my parents. So my parents uh, escaped civil war in Lebanon in the in the eighties. And when January sixth happened, my mom and dad both called both my brothers. They said, "Hey, come home." They recognize they're like, "Hey, this is what happens when a civil war is about to start. This is exactly how it starts." We nobody in our nobody in nobody here has ever experienced civil civil war. They don't know what it looks like or how it starts. They think it's like this humongous thing that all of a sudden erupts out of um, you know like there's there's a lot more behind it. No, it's not a lot more behind it. It's things like that, like January sixth, that happened. That slowly, you you keep putting a little bit more wood on that fire, and it eventually erupts into a civil war. January sixth could have easily become a civil war.
1: It, I think, got very, very close. And I thought, for me in particular, that was the moment where I said that was actually the moment in the back of my head where the podcast was crystallized. I was like. I can't fix this by myself. I'm not arrogant to think that I could, but I have to have a voice here beyond just the rantings and and the world weary sighs that I would have with my friends and family. Like I have to respond. This is the moment where I get called. And my small step in that direction is to start talking with people invested in learning how to heal this Republic. So I agree with you. I think this is a process that happens slowly as you and your family have sort of experienced. And I think the scary thing for me is that January 6th has been normalized. It's like, okay, yeah, that was this thing that happened. And like, let's move on. We often hear that from the right. I mean, Chuck Grassley, I think of Iowa just recently had another, you know, rally with Trump. Now in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, he had a, you know, Terrible condemnation of what Trump did, but didn't vote for, did not vote for impeachment, but but laid into him decently hard, you know, for his role in in inciting this. But then is now at a rally with him because he knows that Trump has a stranglehold on the political party and on the GOP. So, you know, this is like, well, okay, I guess your tune has changed, right? So I think it's politically convenient now for a lot of us to not grapple with really difficult conversations, but as we've learned in healthcare, you don't help your patient if you avoid the tough conversations, right? Mm -hmm. Most people avoid resistance in their life. We are trained to go towards it because that's the only way that you grow. That's the only way that you heal. That's the only way that you serve and help. And that's the premise of the show. And again, the show is not designed to get people to agree with me. It's not designed to tell people what to think it is trying to frame the discussion in a way that's more intelligent and really start a conversation. Because to your point, if we have that dialogue, then we can begin to fix this country. But it's when we don't honor and acknowledge the fact that we have these problems, that these divisions are real, civil war, as you say, or that we got dangerously close to the precipice, that head in the sand mentality will be the end of this country. Uh, literally, if not metaphorically, you know, empires die from within. And, you know, I believe in the goodness of this country. I love this country tremendously. I know you do too. And because I care so much that I want to make sure that doesn't happen.
0: So, I mean, we got a new election coming up 2024, not anytime soon, but still, I mean, it's, it's on our minds. I think a lot of people know, you know, at this point, Trump's already announced he's running for president again in a couple of years. And um, honestly, I think he's going to win. <laughs> I, I'd really think he's going to win. Like if he runs or if they even allow him to make it, because honestly, I just don't imagine the democratic party being able to put up a fight against him this time, especially not with a, with a, with a notable candidate. And I'm kind of worried, man. Like I, you know, I don't know like what this guy's going to do in the in his next 4 years. If in his first 4 he was able to stir up all this drama, what's going to happen next?
1: <laughs> that is the question with Trump. And I mean, I think that, you know, you talk to center center left people, they'll say, well, January 6th was such a you know, dramatic new event that he's weakened enough that he can't win because because enough people have realized just how crazy is he is that uh, he's going to be, you know, a strong player, but he, he won't be able to cross the finish line. I am not so sanguine. I think every time we have counted Trump out, he has shown time and time again that even when he loses, he's still is quite deadly, as we found out in 2020. I think that if it's not him, it will be a Trump acolyte or someone using the Trump playbook. Josh Hawley, Ron DeSantis you know, possibly, you know, you know, representatives from, from Arizona, uh, like the governor there who's doing a not uh, nut job of yeah. <laughs> running the state under the pandemic. Like, you know, I think it'll be Trump. The dangerous thing isn't just Trump. The dangerous thing is Trump 2.0. Trump makes right. so many unforced errors that he becomes his own caricature, right? We all right. know these, right. Even the right. even the Republicans would agree on that point. But Trump 2.0, someone that doesn't make those errors, that knows politically how to not put his foot in his mouth and is able to rig the game better play the game in a way that's more sophisticated as opposed to this sort of walking in of a temper tantrum that is you know donald j trump yeah that person is going to be even more concerning because they know how to rope pull in in the game of politics but they also know how to fan the base and and heat up rhetoric with agitprop and that that person may be dead deadlier than than the original it's like the T-1000 in Terminator 2 versus the yeah. original format, like the liquid guy that could, could blend into things and shape shift like that was a more dangerous version of the Terminator, yeah. right? Because he had more capabilities. So I think that regardless, that's going to happen, you know, with Trump or one of his you know supporters. And the thing is, is that you can't craft effective solutions that really can help people if it's always in response to a person like Trump. Mm -hmm. and that was basically biden's entire campaign i'm not trump i'm not crazy well
0: he won not out of popularity out of people just saying anything
1: we need sanity. we need normalcy yeah right he
0: he won because people just didn't want trump he didn't win just his votes came from uh, i just don't want to vote for trump
1: yeah yeah and i think that like Look, there's an argument to be made that obviously was effective. That just a return to decency, a return to normalcy, is what the country needs. We just wanted a break from the news. Yeah, exactly, exactly, (laughs) which is what this was about. But I think now with this major spending package being debated and brinksmanship with the debt ceiling and the moderates not agreeing with you know the progressives about like what exactly to do uh, regarding how much to spend. You know, I think we're having a situation where the Democrats are losing a golden opportunity to sell the American public on policy innovations that can help their lives. They're politically infighting with games of purity testing as opposed to actually getting down to work. And they're not selling the American public on what may be the largest reorganization of our society in the last 40 years when it comes to spending. Like with the prior stimulus package and the proposed package now, we're looking at like well north of like $10 trillion of governmental spending in just like an 18 to 24 month period. Granted, not all this spending would be done now. It'd be authorized over a number of years, but still like that's a discussion worth having with all of us, not just with Joe Manchin versus AOC versus Kristen Sinema versus, you know, the 10 players, you know, Chuck Schumer that are trying to make this work with Pelosi and Biden. Right. This needs to be a discussion that we have about like, okay, what is this money used for? How does this work? What does this mean for the social contract? That's what this whole discussion is about. And the Democrats aren't having it. They're trying to ram this down because they feel like the political process is broken and the only chance for reform is now. And maybe they're right about that, that like, you know, every president is basically a one year president because the other three years are gone. And the Republicans are likely going to win the midterms next year. And then Trump may be back in 2024 and we're over doing this rodeo all over again. Right. So they might think, hey, this is our last ditch effort to repair the republic. So, I mean, I understand the spirit in which they're doing this, but we, we need to have a public campaign, a communal dialogue over a lot of money. And it's entirely clear that even just within the Democrats, there's not an agreement about this. And I'm I'm glad with that. We need to have that discussion. And I just wish that the Democrats were doing a much better job of leading that with the public, or they may find that they're going to run into sort of the Obamacare scenario where a good piece of legislation, granted flawed, wasn't effectively sold to the public in a legitimate way. And for 10 years after, it led to recurrent battles, granted largely from the right, but even moderate independents and some liberals felt like, hey, is this... Really going to get us, country, you know, this country healthier. That that discussion could have been avoided in part, at least, if you know we had a better public communal dialogue. So I yeah. want to contribute to that dialogue so people can be heard and you know yeah. pursue the truth as they see it.
0: There's a, there's a lack of understanding of politics and all, even you know, in medicine and in the general public. I think people just watch the two main streams of media, Fox News and CNN, and get all their information from there. But to really understand the underlying kind of problems and the the underlying things that are leading to a lot of the things that we're facing um, and to understand politics from a more, I'm not really sure how to word this, but to understand politics from a more fundamental perspective and to understand Mm -hmm. how it's affecting our daily lives, I don't think is being done really well. Even in, you know, there's, I think this, I think your podcast is going to do a lot of good because I think it's, it's something I want to learn more about personally. Like I want to listen, I want to learn more about politics just because I'm curious, interested. I don't totally understand all of the different things at play. I mean, the, the, the few times that I'm able to listen and digest the news is like, you know, a couple of minutes before work or on my drive to work, I put on, you know, the daily drive podcasts and, I get my like snip, snippets of the news of what's happening in the world but I never fully get to understand unless you know like I have some downtime between patients or something and I'm reading an article but it's not it's not that I can really understand what is going on and to understand the pol- political sphere that we're in and I think politics right now is ex- is really important like we are entering a world that's going to be really different in a couple of years like this next election it's gonna be bonkers. If Trump is actually gonna run in 2024, it's gonna be chaos. <laughs> like, like the first time, it was like we just didn't think it was possible for him to win. So we were just like counting him out, you know. And exactly, we'd, exactly, go, yeah. we'd go and watch entertainment. But this time he's gonna come and kind of run again for president in 2024. It's just gonna be like the most crazy reality TV show ever put on, (laughs) ever.
1: Well, that's the argument that some uh, people like Stephanie Grisham, who was, I think, uh, chief of staff for for Melania Trump, the first lady um, who now has a tell-all book. She was also press secretary that never gave a a press conference. Her her basic argument is that, you know, Trump is going to run with the guardrails off. Because if you were to win, that would be his last term, right? Because of term limits for the president. Um, and he's also facing, you know, legal prosecution for impropriety based in, you know, his businesses and activities in New York, right? So like yeah. um, Southern District is, is on his ass for some of that stuff. And some of his tax records have already been sub- subpoenaed. So, you know, the argument is basically like, she's making like, you, you, you thought you've seen a crazy Trump before, you haven't seen anything yet. Yeah. You know, and then there'd be intense amount of resentment from his base over what appears in their minds, at least to be a stolen election. So like a Trump unleashed, I think, is going to be disastrous. And I, and I want to make it clear that, you know, I am strongly anti-Trump. That doesn't mean I don't think we need a strong conservative voice and political party in this country. I, I strongly believe in the marketplace of ideas. And I think conservatives have valuable ideas to bring to the table but trump stands for an egregious aggressive form of narcissism that's been weaponized and used to 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 dangerously hurt the republic and that for me i think stands beyond all else and i think we all need to be united against that kind of ideology because that doesn't help anybody right center or left
0: yeah 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 i'm just i'm just i'm i'm not i'm just curious about like Okay, so this guy's coming into office. He's got nothing to lose this time. He's got he doesn't have to run for re-election. Um, he's yeah. got all of these uh, legal battles yeah. that he's also facing. It just makes me a little bit worried about, you know, the amount of power that he's going to be able to have and inflict on people around him within the political sphere. And he's going to have a lot of control and. Yeah, I don't think I don't think people really comprehend how how bad it could potentially get. But let's just hope for the best.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I also think that that goes back to like my central thesis of where we are as a country. Like, do you believe we are in a time where we need restoration back to the core principles of this country as it has been practically for, you know, especially the modern the modern era? Or do you feel that the system is fundamentally broken and needs to be completely torn down and a revolution needs to occur? And that that occurs on both sides. So, I mean, I think, do you think we're fundamentally gonna be okay? I think is entirely dependent on your experience of the American dream, quote unquote, for you and your community, whatever you define that to be up until now. So I think that then determines the response to Trump and Trumpism, you know, which is happening around the globe like numerous democracies and prior democracies are having a rise of, of authoritarian right-leaning political parties. Like this is not just an American phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon. Like think about it this way. Like are we going to be okay with Trump? Let's wind the clock back about 20 years, right? If not longer than that. We've now won the Cold War. America is the only superpower. And then we have a relative period of peace and prosperity, right? And Clinton was the president during that time. We had a belief in the goodness of America, we've won. Democracy and capitalism was supposed to spread from our beacon of light with this city on top of a hill around the world. Look what has happened in history since then. Democracy really hasn't flourished in a lot of parts of the world the internet and capitalism haven't liberated and freed up societies to democracy and new ideas. China has shown that the internet can be regulated and can be done through a state-controlled market model, right, that isn't fully open at all and they have all kinds of press restrictions. So like, I think that we're at a point where liberalism, and I mean that largely and not the political viewpoints of liberals and, you know, market economics and enlightenment principles of free discussion, dialogue, scientific thinking, basis on fact and reason, you know, isn't a granted. It's not taken for granted. It's not a given. Trump stands in, you know, complete counterpoint to almost all of that. So like the, the future isn't decided yet, but it it definitely isn't something we should take for granted. That the things that we've all assumed are true will continue to stay true about America we have to fight for those things. Yeah. I think,
0: yeah, totally. Um, I, I do think like, especially Americans, we've never, at least our generation has never experienced any kind of real struggle, um, internally or politically or instability or civil war or famine or anything that's like considered a hardship. And we take our freedoms for granted in some way in this country, I think, um, because we think like, this is just a free country. It's always going to be that way. And that's just how it is. I think immigrants to some degree have a better understanding of this because, you know, we've come from families who exactly. know what dictatorships looks look like or failed democracies look like. Like my family's from Lebanon. It's like the worst democrat, quote unquote, democratic, but it's like the most failed political system of history. Um, you know, and it's wreaked havoc on the nation for. 30 years now, I don't think people really understand that at any point, we could enter a civil war, we could lose our freedoms. Like people don't understand that. I guess, I guess one thing also, and and this is maybe even towards uh, leaning towards the the liberal party as well, is that I, you know, this is, you know, I'm pro vaccine 100%, and I've always recommended the vaccine to my patients. And I've always been a proponent of vaccines, and I still am. And, you know, someone had put this post of, should man- vaccines be mandated by the government? I, I thought about it, and and then, like, there's these, like, you know, talk of, like, coercive techniques to get people to take the vaccine. And I was like, okay, look, I agree that we need vaccines, but I don't believe that we should be coercing people into getting the vaccine or mandating the vaccine, or making something mandatory that should be a choice, regardless of you know if you're putting something into your body, there should be a you know some level of that this is a choice. And the second, I worry about the slippery slope. That was the point I was trying to make: is that there's a slippery slope between mandating something and 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 crossing almost like a personal boundary or a free you know what quote unquote freedom boundary. And, and and making precedent for future opportunities to do the same thing. Because a lot of uh, things can get really slippery at that point. If you say this is mandatory, and you got to do this, and you know, where does it stop? Where does it end? And my concern about that was, do we ever reach a point where we say, all right, we're going to make this mandatory and I don't know, I guess I'm not really sure where I'm going with this. I might have to (laughs) rewind a little bit. But I'd love to hear your take on this. And do you think at what point should government or politics or politicians be able to say, hey, you know, vaccines are mandatory? um, And at what point does it become too slippery? And does it compromise our freedoms?
1: Yeah, I mean, as, as a bioethics major, these are exactly the kind of debates that I, I loved having. And I would say that my own thinking has evolved quite a bit on this particular topic. So, I mean, I would say that the first thing that I would point out before I might go into deeper about that is that, quote unquote, vaccine mandates have existed for a very long time. Right. You know, you can't send your kids to school unless they had chicken pox and MMR and DTaP and a variety of vaccines, you know, right. I mean, ask any pediatrician, right? So like the idea that you would be required to get a vaccine for the public good, as well as obviously the good of your child, uh, has existed in our society for years. Number two, George Washington required a smallpox inoculation of, you know, soldiers back in the 1700s, uh, mandated by the government of military you know individuals so like this is not unusual so like the idea that the government for the national good can require these things is a precedent that has been set mm-hmm. and up until now i don't think anyone would look at us history for the last whatever 250 300 plus years right. and say it is in fact these requirements that have led to all the problems that we have in this country, right? right and other things. I think the, the next thing though, is that what you just cited now slippery slope that in my opinion, is an argument that we have a lack of trust. If we had a society right now where we all had a reasonable amount of faith of the institutions of our body politic, we had a faith in the medical establishment. If we had faith, just a modicum amount of faith in politicians and in the government, We'd all be like, yeah, this is kind of annoying, but hey, let's just do it and move on, right? The fact that this has gone from that to such a highly politicized emotional disagreement that is ripping families apart, let alone political parties, is just a testament to the fact that we all have truth and trust decay in particular. What is the half-life of trust in society? So this is an issue of trust. So whenever I argue that in some circumstances, the federal government, at least, shouldn't in isolation have a vaccine mandate is primarily because you're exacerbating the underlying problem, right? We're physicians. We do a root cause analysis, right? If the central problem is lack of trust in centralized authority, particularly the federal government, then for the federal government, then to mandate a vaccine will be counterproductive. Now, I do think in some scenarios, mandates make sense, right? Right an employer has the right to mandate vaccines for their right. employees. Yeah. So like the federal government. With that.
0: Totally with the private sector, you know, like if you own a company, you should be able to make a decision on that. I'm just, I'm, I'm. my only, my question, and I think you're addressing this really well, is like, at what point is it appropriate for our government to say it's mandatory for you to get this vaccine? And does that pose a threat to our democracy?
1: I mean, I would say that, again, to use a healthcare analogy, like we triage situations, we we order patients' problems in order of acuity. And if we have limited resources, we have to triage patients and problems. I I don't necessarily personally agree that a vaccine mandate alone is going to lead to a slippery slope being the central challenge in a list of problems to this democracy. I mean, I think that America's libertarian focus of self-ownership has always created a bugaboo. Which has been real at times. I'm not dismissing it outright of centralized power being the great threat to American democracy. Um, But I also argue that there are plenty of other threats that are more pressing right now. So, to answer your question, I would say that, like a local school district, like in here in California, absolutely has the right to mandate vaccines Mm -hmm. and has done that without notable disagreement. I mean, I think one thing we should make clear is that, regardless of your views of vaccines and vaccine mandates, Anti-vaxxers, formal skeptics of vaccines who don't want any, was a fringe political view or personal view up until a few years ago, like fringe, right? We knew that there were measles outbreaks in California and certain wellness communities and places in, in New York in particular over the last five plus years, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100, 100 plus would be reported. You know, the CDC would catch a little attention in the news and then go away. This was a fringe movement. Now, granted, it probably was bigger than we thought it was because these people weren't getting the attention. But the idea that a vaccine mandate and anti-vaxxers are a center point in a national political discussion just shows how much this has accelerated just in a few short years. And that that isn't on accident. Right. So I think we're not having this discussion in a vacuum. But I would also say that what ethical framework are you going to use to assess if your decision on a vaccine mandate is is appropriate or not, if you use a consequentialist or utilitarian argument, Mm -hmm. greatest good for the greatest number of people, quote, unquote, right, sort of a pithy summary of that worldview, Mm -hmm. you know, it would be hard pressed to argue that, hey, you know, there are a number of people that are going to get acutely ill and or die, 700,000 individuals have already succumbed to this virus because of a, you know, you know, we, we decide that, hey, like, we're, we're not going to pursue a vaccine mandate. So if your choice to, you know, participate in the body politic means that certain choices have to be made for you, right? Like no one questions the utility of seatbelts and following traffic safety laws. Granted, that is an infringement on personal property or personal freedoms and indirectly determines what you can do with your body. So if you're going to say greatest good for the greatest number of people, I think as physicians, we'd have to say, hey, you know, there are a lot of people that could suffer and or die from this virus. If that means I have to take a safe vaccine that's been proven safe, 5 billion shots have been given worldwide, 5 billion with a B, right? That's a small potential risk to take for a very well-known and documented harm that could be avoided. So from a utilitarian focus, I think you'd argue, hey, in most scenarios, a vaccine mandate makes sense. Now, if you use a deontological approach, a duty-based approach, the question I would ask you is, okay, you want to determine if a vaccine mandate is ethical or not. That first is premised on what is your conception of your duty to your fellow citizens, to yourself and to this country. That answer will then determine what you think you should do with the vaccine mandate. If you think that your duty is primarily to yourself, a self-libertarian sort of ideal, which a lot of people in this country have, and that that alone is what guarantees a safe republic, then you might argue, hey, a vaccine mandate doesn't make any sense. It's a fundamental violation of my ability to be autonomous, right? If you conceptualize your duty, what you are all owed and obligated to do, think and or provide for other people, and healthcare is a duty-based field more than almost any other, Right then, I, if you feel that that duty exists to other people, you have to ask yourself that question first. So, like the point of the podcast, for example, isn't necessarily for me to tell you, "Hey, you should do a vaccine mandate or not." I certainly have a stance on it, but to like unwrap the different layers of this onion to conceptualize, well, how would we even begin to answer that question? Yeah,
0: yeah. I
1: don't think you answer it just out of a vacuum, out of the dark. I think we have to build in different components to sort of build up that understanding, you know, whether it's in a dialogue like this or with someone who studied vaccine mandates in the past to see how they played out in different countries, different parts of the United States, what might be the consequences of this. So I wouldn't say as a last point a vaccine mandate by itself usually makes sense, right? You have to have policies in place for choice because I think that you're gonna inflame a country that just had a national right in almost a civil war a year ago, the major hyperpolarizing move. So in most scenarios I argue you have to have at least twice a day, twice a week testing, mass requirement for those who don't want to get vaccinated. That has to be tracked religiously and we have to make sure that any exemptions are done for legitimate reasons. And there may be some scenarios where there are restrictions of what you can do at work, right? Like maybe you don't work in the ICU if you're not willing to get vaccinated, right? Maybe there's a restriction on other benefits and or job-related functions if you're not willing to fully engage with what is the consensus and the scientific literacy on this particular topic. But I think a heavy-handed, top-down approach by itself is going to be very, very, I think, concerning and dangerous. It's going to have some long-term political ramifications that I think any one of us want.
0: Yeah. No, that's an awesome framework, honestly, and um, you know, even for me, from my perspective, I guess I, I will say I'm fairly libertarian. So I do have kind of like in the middle, middle ground on um, political uh, opinions. I try to keep them to myself, but um, I think I lean a little bit more towards the liberal side in some scenarios and conservative and others. Um, but I do, I do coming from my background, I think any of my human Cuban friends from like medical school on um, who's uh, you know, experience communism or people from the Soviet Union, people with like that history, that background, that understand that the value of freedom have, I've noticed have a very different take on politics than other people that I've like, for me, I do think like, I do really value the importance of freedom of choice. And I do, you know, like it, you know, I do come from that framework and from that background. And I think a lot of Americans really value like, I guess they go, I think, Some Americans go overboard with the second amendment, right? But, you know, for, you know, freedom is really, really really important in this country, freedom to choose, Um, but that's a really good framework. And it gives me perspective to think, okay, from what perspective am I coming at this from? What is my duty? I'm looking at my duty as the greater good of the country. Then of course, and I think a lot of Americans do look at things from the greater good of the country why else do people sign up to for the army or the Navy or for the Marines? Because they're what their duty is to their country to serve their country. It, you know, similarly, if that is your duty, wouldn't your duty to protect your country be to take a vaccine? Should that be required? Why is that any different? But also look at it from the other side of things of like, well, my duty is to make sure that our freedoms aren't compromised. Well, you know, if a government's going to say you have to do something and inject something into your body, Is that is that crossing the line? So like I'm I'm trying to play a little bit of devil's advocate here because I really want to get to the root cause of this conversation. And you know, I think my stance previous, I think you may have swayed me a little bit, but I I think that ultimately we shouldn't have to be coerced by government to make a decision. I I do think any company private institutions should have that right to mandate that for any of their employees because you know it's part of living in a free country if you have an institution you should be able to make certain requirements by law but i guess I, I, i'm blanking out on the on the point that i was trying to make earlier and that was a good one <laughs> but it slipped my mind but we'll, i'll let you answer to that
1: yeah i mean i think that again like my general view is that private employers should have a having an option to have vaccine mandates, the government, the the federal government is, is one of the largest employers in the country, maybe right after Walmart. So, I mean, I think you can argue that in that capacity for federal employees, there can be a requirement there. I mean, I think that, look, if you're in a healthcare facing field, which a lot of your listeners are, that's a difficult argument to make that we should be fully protecting our patients by taking on vaccines. Like this issue exists for years for flu vaccines, right? Yeah. You generally have to do that. I mean, I think the real issue first is i agree with you coercion is never going to be an effective or cost-free method of getting patients and and fellow citizens vaccinated right it shouldn't have to come to that but the problem is is that America's sins have come home and we're having to deal with them right we've had massive educational problems in this country for decades where many americans graduate from high school Uh, They don't have, you know, basic scientific literacy. So how are you expecting them to trust the government on an mRNA vaccine technology that is relatively novel that we tell you is safe for a virus that some people don't even believe exists or may have come from a lab or has all kinds of unique features. So it's like there's basic scientific literacy. But then the real issue, the the argument that I make, the kind of pop culture analogy is like this is the scream metaphor I'm a huge fan of the Scream movie series. I don't know if you've seen those, but any horror film usually involves a central character at home or in some sort of location. And what happens, right? They hear a door creaking and they freak out. They think the killer is there. They hear wind blowing through the trees and they turn around. The killer's not there. Every tiny little change in their environment, they're on high alert. The killer's not there. Then the one time you think the killer's not there, he's there, of course, right? And that's how this show or these, these movies run. Like The reason that people are freaking out over every potential risk theoretically associated with these vaccines and what the government might do with them is because they don't trust the government and they don't have a basic abiding faith in that there is someone out there that has their back. But where is that lack of trust coming from? Well, there are political events over the years, Watergate, presence lying to us, Vietnam, racial tensions, those things are real. Mm -hmm. But emotionally, they come down to the fact that people feel scared, like that character in that horror film, and they feel alone. They don't feel someone's out there that's going to help them. So that combined with lack of trust and lack of literacy erodes any basic decency uh, of this sort of discussion. It gets the rhetoric gets amped up to an eleven because this no longer becomes just a scientific discussion on the merits of a vaccine. It becomes this emotional trauma-inducing conversation. right? And this is a period of, of universal trauma, which is so rare in human history, where we are all experiencing one event through the lenses of our particular experiences. So yeah, I don't think a government heavy-handed approach of like, you have to do this will work. And even if it does work in terms of increasing shots and in arms, it will have a huge political cost. I think liberals tend to underestimate yeah. just how fragile our democracy is. Right. You ride people hard on vaccines; it will come and have major political ramifications later. Yeah. On the other hand, as as a point that I give you, like people say about my freedom, like well, that's a philosophical concept. Freedom. What? Well, how do you conceptualize freedom? Most people who are libertarian, for them, it's Freedom to do what I want, basically. Freedom from external authority, restrictions, rules, and laws. But what about freedom from disease? Freedom to be alive, right? The immunocompromised patient that's on chemo, and I have a lot of those kind of patients, they, they don't have a lot of choices. And their health is directly tied to the choices of the people around them. So I think this particular pandemic is challenging because it challenges individual liberty and its linked to the common good. And we are living in a time where people question the common good because they're scared, they're alone, there's a fundamental lack of education about some of these complex topics, and there is a lack of trust because we have decimated the common good Mm -hmm. through political and other historical events through the last 50 years in particular, 30 years in particular. Mm -hmm. And in that background, can anyone have a rational conversation about a vaccine mandate I think it's hard in that backdrop to make that conversation sane and normal and de-escalate it from where it's become, right?
0: Yeah. You you so you touched on one of the main things and that I thought was really important and that was the current climate that we're in, the cultural mm-hmm. sensitivity, yeah. the brink of collapse. Like you throw in a mandate like this from government and you just put icing on the cake and yeah, you yeah. get you just Yeah. I think that's a really dangerous move. Um, just in terms of where we're currently at right now and the political climate yeah, yeah. that we're in, and you—you know—you just set up someone like Trump to come in and just sweep a whole part of the nation single-handedly because you've done something <laughs> as a country that's so politically charged, and even people that people that maybe even on the left may disagree with that a guy like this comes in and could just completely take advantage of that?
1: Look, I mean, I think I'm not going to write out Trump's playbook, obviously not. Uh, But I think that it's pretty obvious what are the through lines of any potential 2024 campaign that he's going to use. I mean, I would say that. You know, the offside, the, the, the counterpoint is, you know, look, did I necessarily agree with Biden's proclamation recently about the quote-unquote vaccine mandate in players of 750 or larger or whatever, like, you know, not in its entirety, but the reality is, is that we have to move on as a country, right? We are stuck in a pandemic and Delta in particular is almost exclusively human unforced error. This is our yeah. incompetent inability to work together to achieve the common good that is keeping us in a pandemic that is taking away so many of our freedoms, which is ironic so so many libertarians are about like my freedom to choose, but like your lack of ability to see the greater picture is actually curtailing the very freedoms to live the life that you say you want so bad because you don't want a vaccine. So it's like, we have this conversation asked backwards. And part of it is because none of us, and I include myself in this, can look beyond our own interests to what is good for the country. And we haven't had a culture, I might add, that is incorporated inculcated and, and encouraged that kind of thinking, yeah. right? America is very good at an individualistic ethos. It is much less effective at incorporating notions of a kind of a communal good, of a communitarian ethic, right? And I think right now is the first time many of our fellow citizens, especially on the younger side, have been forced to be asked of themselves, to ask of themselves, what do I need to do for the common good? Mm-hmm. In an acute way that will directly impact human lives, not in some abstract well, I theoretical way. Think, I think way.
0: That some people's perception of the common good is differing. Like some people that might have like, that might say like, we don't want government to mandate vaccines would think the common good is to protect the overall countries protect the country from going down the slope of um actually yeah. making more of these kinds of decisions for the people and going down a slippery slope. And that and to, from my experience of talking to people, it's mostly people that come from backgrounds where they've been under communist occupation or um some kind of tyranny like that. So there's this trauma of like, they're, they're out to get us. Yeah. And it's, you know, any form of taking away or making a decision on our behalf against our will is a form of tyranny and a form of oppression. Exactly. And the- you,
1: you just cited it right here, right? Like you said, trauma. I yeah. mean, coming from, you know, colleagues that are a mental health provider, I mean, they'll tell you that like trauma needs to be addressed and healed. But without that healing done, you can't often make healthy decisions for yourself or others if you're coming from a place of, of a wounded heart, of a, of a wounded psyche, right? Mm-hmm. And we have national trauma that just hasn't been healed, right? Ever. Yeah. I mean, race is probably being the top of that. So point being is that no one needs to dismiss that that life and lived experience of coming from a country of centralized hegemony of authoritarian power. But the irony is that because of the degradation of the common good, we have someone like Trump who is using that very authoritarian playbook to write to power potentially a second time. So that's kind of the irony is that you don't deal with your trauma, you don't deal with your own hurt and past experiences, that past will reverberate again. And I think that The other thing is like, how many lives are your freedom to choose on the vaccine worth? We have 700,000 dead. We don't know if another variant will occur. We know medically that the longer that there is an unvaccinated pool of Americans, and by most estimates, there are about 90 million in this country alone that haven't had even a single shot. Billions around the world that have been in that boat, right? That could be a source outside the country that could bring in an entirely different sort of kind of pandemic here, right? So how many lives is it worth before we're like, look, to save future lives, preserve future freedoms, we, we have to move on this. I think Biden ultimately realized the political expediency, but the sheer exhaustion of most of the country, because for those that don't want to mask up or get vaccinated, their de facto choice is this. The people who are masking up and getting vaccinated it is exclusively your responsibility to solve this pandemic. Because you're not getting involved if you're not getting a shot. You're not participating if you're not socially distancing. You're not part of the solution if you don't mask up. So there's an incredible frustration where the people who are doing, quote, the right things, according to scientific consensus, are bearing the burden of dealing with a global pandemic that continues to be perpetuated. So when the libertarians or people on the right say, my freedom's. I mean that's almost laughable to someone that's doing everything yeah. by the book, trying to get on with their life. Right? Yeah,
0: I do think I do think to a degree it's become a political statement, though, where some people are just doing things just because you know they're you know they're, it, it's a political stance to wear a mask, you know, like exactly. in a lot of cases I you know we're not wear a mask. Yeah, for not wearing a mask or for wearing a mask, right? Because like if, in some cases, it makes no sense to wear a mask, like it, you know. When you're sitting ten feet away from someone and you're, you know, putting down your mask to eat and like, like, there's some stances where wearing a mask, like, from a from an actual like physiological, objective, scientific standpoint, just doesn't even really make a difference. And it's politicized, right? It's a political statement. And you're doing it to not be an asshole in in a lot of situations. You're doing it because you don't want to be the person that stands out that's not, you know, doing something and. Like you know that it's probably not providing a lot of benefit since we're all vaccinated and we're all this, but we're all wearing a mask because we're cordial and we respect each other and we want to wear a mask. But you don't want to be the guy not wearing a mask, right? So you you wear it. And, and there's politicalization in certain aspects of this mask, versus no mask versus like vaccine versus no vaccine, and it's it's just. I don't know why we always do this with all these things and just make it about politics and you know where we stand on our politics. But you know, I think that I think a lot of I think a lot of anti-vaxxers or a lot of um Trump supporters are doing things now because they also see it as like a political statement, like no, I'm not gonna wear a mask here or there, even though you know, if in some situations a mask is totally appropriate and it's beneficial. But there's still, you know, they're like, okay, I'm not going to wear a mask here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, number one, I mean, this has been said ad nauseum, but we're, we're a tribal society now, right? And that's an evolutionary impulse to protect your tribe. And if you think about, if you replace tribe with family, if you thought that someone was attacking your family, you'd do almost anything. If you thought it was a survivalistic sort of impulse, protect your family i think most of us would and that would automatically ratchet up the intensity of any discussion decision threat choice that had to be made right so when our national body politic is in that standpoint you understand where how we've gotten to this point right that's the dangerous thing right now it's not just political differences it's not just polarization you have some people arguing for civil war or that there is the survival of the body politic at play here that we're going to we're going to turn on each other so that that survivalist tendency is what's driving a lot of this discussion here right and i think that is you know that is escalating this beyond what i think reason can deal with right it's hard to have a reason fact based discussion when that occurs and i think that we don't have a country that is incorporated things that exist in other nations like national days of service or a required period of serving the country in the armed forces, there's some equivalent like exists in, in Israel, for example, right? We, we have this notion of the individual let loose is going to propel this country forward. And I believe in that. But now is a time where we have to think about each other. And I think who better than a physician who's dedicated his or her life to a humanitarian mission and ethos of serving to help frame this debate, to guide people through this debate who may not necessarily have the training and the lived experience to deal with this, right?
0: Rusha and in, in your work, like do, have you noticed any have you noticed that you have some political sway because of your background when talking to some whether it be patients or others about certain things in politics?
1: Well, I mean, I think that like, you know, for patients that are willing, and I've had a few patients get into a discussion with me about vaccines. Um you know, I think they definitely, if they've come to see me in clinic, there's at least a baseline level of like, I want to hear what you have to say, right? If they were completely antithetical to my approach, that they wouldn't be in my exam room. So I do think that the approach, and we were talking about this earlier, that I have with most of my patients is to strip away a lot of the accoutrements and the professional theater. And I don't use that dismissively yeah. uh, associated with being a physician. I don't wear a white coat. You know, I keep the stethoscope on the side. I just introduce myself as Rusha. I don't, I don't come in with a lot of authority and I do that specifically so that I can remove those power barriers so that people feel comfortable telling me stuff. And given my particular clinical field of GI, right. There's obviously a lot of intimate things that people have to discuss. So I I want them feeling safe to be able to say that without any fear of shame or or judgment. And so with that, yeah, I feel like I can have sometimes a better discussion. I don't make it a point per se to sway people and people are like, wow, but you have so many political viewpoints, you don't try and convince your patients to get vaccinated. I'm like, no, in a one-on-one setting as opposed to a group setting or public health political discussion, My goal is always to try and understand where my patient is coming from, whether it's for their clinical issues or not. I I can't make any inroads, quote unquote, to get someone vaccinated if they don't feel I'm in their circle, right? I got to get in their circle first. I have to break that shell of distrust and fear and and maybe just even skepticism. If I come at them hard it's not going to work right so i try not just build that rapport but also like understand their value system and try and see where is there a point of mutuality of commonality between what they value and what i value there you can build a consensus from that point that hopefully will get them to eventually consider taking a vaccine but even then it has to be a choice that they commit to it's the same thing with a colonoscopy probably one of the most embarrassing and or difficult or stressful periods uh that a patient can go through uh in terms of a procedure that's that's a hard sell to someone you got to fast then be on a clear liquid diet before that fast you got to drink salt water gallons of that and then you got to be sedated we're going to put a camera below you know and you're through your bottom and then we're going to look through your entire colorectal system to make sure we don't have polyps and blah 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 like that's a hard sell for people right and so when i have these discussions about colon cancer screening I give them like, yes, the facts and the pros and the cons of this approach versus that. But I I really want to understand like what what matters to you? What is going to connect this choice to something that that is of deep import to you? So for a lot of people, it's your family. And so I try and say like, what is your goal for your family? Do you want to be around for your family? and what capacity do you want to be there for your kids? When I start linking this choice to the things that they have an intuitive grasp on, then then it starts making this decision better. And so that's kind of one of the meta points of the show, which is, again, not for me to tell you what to think, but like, how do we frame this discussion in a way that will bring more clarity as opposed to chaos? Because that's not what our media is doing and that's not what our politicians are doing. And if that's bringing an expert who's thought about this, is it, if it's bringing in a PTA president down the street that's really advocated for this kind of stuff, if it's having discussions like this, I think these are the discussions that you rebuild the national fabric, right? Yeah. That's that's my enduring premise. That's the enduring premise of this show. Yeah, and I think that you kind of feel that way too, because your show is about conversations with people beyond medicine who are pushing the borders of what physicians can do, and that's an exciting show to listen to, right? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, and I got to. I, I, I want to
0: just you know give you credit because you 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 do have a particular skill or talent at taking something and and framing it in a way. And you you did that, for example, with my question about a vaccine mandate. And I think that is a great way because I don't particularly want someone telling me, you know, what, what is right, what is wrong, but just lay out the facts and give us some perspective and a framework to work with that can allow me to come to my own conclusion. And I think that you do that really well. And you also, that's, that's something that's really needed right now. And You want it. You want that framework to come from someone you trust. And I think a lot of people can trust uh, doctors and a a physician like yourself. And man, I'm really excited about this podcast. I'm excited to see. um, uh, Thank you. I'm excited to hear some of your guys' topics. And yeah, man, like I I think politics are an important uh, topic for us to all kind of get familiar with. And I know a lot of people say, you know, like I try to stay out of politics or politics are for me, but even if you're not someone who speaks of politics openly or you keep your politics to yourself, it's still, I think, important to understand or be able to be able to understand what's happening around us because politics play into all of our daily lives. And I I, I believe more so in the future and in the coming years than, than previously. So I think I I recommend everybody to follow, uh, follow you and listen to your uh, podcast, Alchemy of Politics, which is a great, Great name, by the way. Um thank
1: you. Thank you.
0: <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to share that plug with everybody and, and, and tell everyone where to follow you at.
1: Yeah, so you can always go to the alchemyofpolitics.com. Uh, you can also uh, listen to Alchemy of Politics podcast launching soon and all the major streaming podcast platforms. And then Alchemy of Politics will be the uh the handle for most social media platforms and then you know, my social media, Rusha Modi, R-U-S-H-A-M-O-D-I, is also available also on most social media platforms. So I'll definitely link to that. So I, I encourage everyone to, to listen to your show because I love Beyond Medicine. Hopefully listen to mine and find something of real value. And I mean, I would just say as a last message, I think that your voice, particularly as a physician, counts. Your lived experience of taking care of people is something that our national dialogue needs most people in politics, most of our leaders, certainly most of our media, they don't have that experience. And I think that we are doing ourselves a disservice individually and as a field, if we don't take that experience and share it with others and provide some sort of guidance on how to have these conversations, how to lead people through very difficult times. We've been doing that professionally since we all entered the field. And I think it's time we at least take that step forward and do it really for the country, and I really encourage all of you to find even small opportunities in your day to reach out to people and have discussions about quote these larger issues. And I think you'll find that's how we really rebuild America, you know, one conversation, one neighborhood, one little town, one, one session person per person, citizen to citizen at a time. Um, so that's that's kind of the hope that I have. I think the Future of America is as bright as ever if we have these kind of conversations. I really do. If we don't, then I think whatever future we have will be what we deserve.
0: Yeah, Rusha, thanks so much for joining us today, man. I, I, I loved all the perspective and all the insights and um, and all the intellect uh, around politics and just for being a cool guy, man. It's been great to talk to you, guys. Thank you. Make sure you follow him. Make sure you check out Alchemy Politics. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Make sure you screenshot this episode, post us on your stories, share us on social media, tag a couple of friends, it'll help us spread the word, and uh, we'll catch you guys next week. Beyond Med family, if you guys enjoyed this episode, if you found any parts of it, Particularly helpful or useful, you can take a screenshot or you can even screen record the part of the episode you thought was most interesting to you or most helpful to you. And that way we get some feedback and we find out what you guys like to hear, what is helpful, and that way we can produce better and better podcasts in the future. So take a screenshot, do a screen record, post it on your social story, tag us at Beyond underscore med or tag me at webby.do.